before we kick off, I just wanted to make a quick announcement. We've just had a very exciting development here at Hans. We now have merch. Specifically, I have put the logo onto some caps and beanies. Mainly because that's something I wear a lot, and I wanted to become a walking, talking advertisement for the show more so than I already am. But also because I think merch shouldn't just be crap. It should be at least somewhat useful. And I think caps and beanies can be useful. On top of that, I'm hoping some of you out there are interested in some cool stuff and a bit more of a reward for supporting the show. What you want to know, though, is how do I get a hold of this fresh, sick-ass merch? Well, going forward, it will be available to patrons who pledge at the Moa tier for at least three months and the Tuatara tier for at least two months. That is the $10 and $20 tiers, respectively. This covers the cost of the cap or the beanie, as well as a bit of the postage too, given I live at the edge of the world and postage overseas can be really costly. I also see it as a way to reward those of you who are committed to supporting Hans in the long term. Though, of course, you are welcome to just hit it and quit it after you get the hat, though I would really rather you didn't, but that is an option that is available to you. So, just to reiterate, you must be a patron for three months at the $10 and two months for the $20 tier before I will send you an email asking for your delivery address and whether you want a cap or a beanie, because I'll give you a choice. Those of you who are already patrons at those tiers will get this reward backdated to when they first became a patron. And if you start at a lower patron tier and then upgrade to a higher patron tier that includes this reward, I'll do some weird maths to try and figure out kind of how much you've already donated and then we'll kind of go from there. However... If you want to get your hands on a hat now, I am giving away three of each of the beanies and caps, so six hats in total. The way I've decided to do this is since it is summer in the northern hemisphere, and it's meant to be winter in the southern hemisphere, for the giveaway, caps will be up for grabs in the north and beanies in the south. This is mostly to avoid confusion, and so that all the winners aren't asking for the same thing. So, how do you enter? All you have to do is email me at historyaltaradoa at gmail.com, your name, which hemisphere you are in, something new you have learned from the podcast, or what you have enjoyed, or a suggestion for a future topic, and one of the following. A screenshot of a review you left for Hans, which doesn't have to be current, if you already did one a while ago, you could just use that, or a picture of where you are listening to the show, whether it be in your office, your house, or a bus, wherever, doesn't really have to be too fancy. After the end of the giveaway, I will choose the winners at random. Are these conditions totally self-serving? Yeah, absolutely. But I thought I might use this as a mechanism for some more feedback, as well as giving back to the community that has grown from nothing in just over half a year. The popularity of Hans has exploded over the short time it has been in existence, so this giveaway is, in part, to say thank you to all of you out there for making this project so much more worthwhile. To recap, you must send your entry to the email. Do not send it to me on Twitter, Facebook, or anywhere else, because I am liable to not see it otherwise. Emails will guarantee that I see it. You must send me your name, your hemisphere, some sort of detail about the podcast, be that praise, a suggestion, or something that you learnt, or even 
criticism if you so choose, as well as either a screenshot of your review or a picture of where you are listening. If I don't have all of these things, you will not be entered. If you want though, you can also add if you are willing for your picture to be posted on social media, as it would be cool to share around where people are listening, if you're comfortable with that. If you say no, or don't give express permission, I won't share it anywhere. Although I should say, allowing me to share it on social media will not increase your chances of winning the competition. The giveaway will run for four weeks, that is 1, 2, 3, 4, so at 5pm NZST on the 24th of August 2019, it will close, and I will pick and email winners. I'll put all of this on the website under this episode too, so you can reference it without having to play this back, and if anything is confusing, just flick me an email and I can clear it up. Right, now that this has gone on for a lot longer than I intended, cue the music! Kia g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand, episode 18, bringing art to the surface. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons, such as Michelle, Beinich, Stu and my auntie. If you want to support Hans, search for History Aotearoa on Patreon. Last time, we talked about tokipatangata, ceremonial adzes what they were, what they were used for, and what they meant. We also talked a bit about other tools used by pre-European Māori, such as drills and the big crossbow thing they used to cut down trees. This time, we will talk a bit more about the carvings themselves. In particular, I want to talk about the origins and a bit about the development of Māori carving. Not the East Polynesian origins, though that is interesting. What I want to talk about is the mythical origins as where carving came from is steeped in myth and legend, like a lot of things in Māori culture. This story comes to us from Ngāti Poru, an iwi based around Gisborne on the east coast of the North Island. Keep in mind that although this may be agreed upon to be broadly correct, other iwi may have slightly different details, or some may have stories that are different completely. It starts with the great-grandson of Tangaroa, god of the sea, called Manuruhi. Manu had a son who loved seafood and would eat it every day. In fact, his son ate so much kaimoana that he struggled to keep up, to the point where Manu had to ask his father for help. Rua te Pupuki, Manu's father, fashioned a hook from special stone into the shape of an ika, fish, calling it the prize stone of Tangaroa. This hook was meant to be magical and catch many fish. But Rua warned his son, be careful with this hook. Do not on any account go out alone and use it. Wait until I am with you so that we can catch the first fish, which we must give to the gods according to custom. Manu knew his father to be wise and heeded his words to wait for him. And so he waited. And waited. And waited. As time dragged on, Manu became curious about the hook. Could it really catch as many fish as his father had promised? To make matters worse, his young friends were goading him into trying it out without his father to test the magic of the hook. 
adding in the likely cries and protests of his son not getting the desired amount of fish, Manu could wait no longer. Out he went, throwing a hook out onto a line and into the great ocean of his ancestors. And what a magnificent hook it was. With every cast, there was quickly a fish on the line. Hapuku, Kahawai, Snapper, Moki, Gurnard, every fish one could imagine, and soon he had more than enough to feed his son. What Manu was unaware of, though, was Tangaroa himself was watching. The god of the sea was quite alarmed at what he saw, and he feared for his grandchildren, the fish, who were fathered by Tangaroa's son, Ikatiri. The hook was much too good. Just as much as he feared for his mokopuna, Tangaroa was affronted by the fact that Manu had failed to give the proper sacrifice of the first catch. He decided he would have to act against his grandson for the good of the rest of his family, and he called upon his power to turn Manu into a tui, a type of bird. As it so happened, Tui and Bellbird were the children of another grandchild of Tangaroa, making the Tui a cousin of Manu, but was of a lower genealogical rank due to Manu being born of the line of the older brother of Tui's father. That's not really important though. Thus, Tangaroa took revenge and Utu for the main hara, sins or transgressions of tapu, committed by Manu and his father. The first hara, committed by Manu, was of course the failure to give sacrifice of the first catch to the Lord of the Ocean, a serious ritual breach and a matter of life and death. The second was the one committed by Manu's father, Rua. He had used the great name of Tangaroa without the god's blessing or permission when naming the magical hook. Making matters worse was that Rua had named the hook without any acknowledgement of obligation by way of incantations or special ceremony. What that meant was that Rua had used Tangaroa's name in a poka noa fashion, randomly and without the authority it deserved. After some time had passed and no one had seen Manu, Rua began calling at different villages looking for his son, but to no avail. After many days of asking and searching, Rua became despondent, sitting down to weep at the loss of his son. He wept until he thought of one last place he hadn't looked, the beaches, where he may find his son's footprints. He rushed off, and when he walked along the beach, Rua saw the large heap of fish Manu had caught, along with a set of footprints next to it. However, there was no other sign of his son, nor did the footprints lead anywhere. Rua wept more bitterly, the loss of his son overwhelming him. Desperate and hysterical, he swam out to sea where he thought his son had been fishing and dived down deep, deep, deep. What he found, he could have never imagined. He spied a village, which was just like a human village, and there in the centre of it was a wondrous Farinui called Huitiana Nui. His curiosity aroused, Rua approached the house and heard people talking, using the same language just like the people who lived on Tangaroa's mother, Papa, the Earth Mother. He peered into the house, and what he saw amazed him even more. 
the Po on one side were conversing with the Po on the opposite wall, and the Po at the back wall were speaking to those at the doorway. Rua took a step back, processing this fantastical sight, and he looked upwards from the porch to see none other than his own son, who was now a Tekoteko, the 3D figure at the apex of a whare. Manu was looking earnestly and pleadingly at Rua, but he could not speak to his father. He could only glare, goading him to be released. One of the po located on the porch asked Rua, where are you going? And Rua answered that he was searching for his son, who was now the Tekoteko. The po then explained that Tangaroa himself had done this to him and why he felt it was necessary. Now, it was Rua's turn to be offended, and he also planned his revenge. His grandfather had wronged him, and so he must pay back one bad deed with another. At this time, the people of the village were away, and the Po told Rua they wouldn't be back until evening, so he hid and waited. Eventually, the people of the village and the house returned, amusing themselves for hours. After some time, they fell into a deep sleep. So deep, in fact, that their sentry, Tutupakurangi, called them three times, but they did not wake. Two of the Po, Fede and Fera, warned them about what might happen, but it made no difference. And so, Rua took his revenge. He took down his son and set the house on fire. Once Huitiana Nui was ablaze, he stood outside the doorway with his patu. As the people rushed out to escape, he swung at them. First came Maroro, the flying fish, but Rua missed him. Then Faiteri, the stingray, came dashing out. Rua swung his patu and hit Faiteri on the nose, hence the squashed nose of the stingray. Pātiki, the flounder, was next. Rua hit him in the eye. That is why the eyes of the flounder cling to one side. Fiki, the octopus, followed, and Rua struck him hard. That is why his tentacles hang loosely. Next came Kokiri, the leather jacket, and last was Tamuri, the snapper. The fire burnt the top of Tamuri's head, hence why snapper are red. A large number of people perished in that fire, and most of them belonged to the family of Ikateri. Many of the Po too were destroyed. All that remained were the four Po on the porch, and they were silent. Hurriedly, Rua grabbed them and the image of his son, and raced back home. Now, had he taken his time and kept his wits about him, Rua might have brought back to this world a far greater prize, Talking Po. But as it stood, by the time Rua returned, they were unable to speak, even if they wanted to. When he finally did reach his village, his whānau wept over Rua. It seemed that he too had become lost to his people, but he had accomplished a great deed for mankind. He had obtained from Tangaroa the sea god a gift of tremendous importance for generations yet unborn. The silent Po became a model for carving house posts, and the Tekoteko of Manoruhi probably became the model for modern Manaya figures throughout the eastern sea coast of the North Island, 
from Gisborne to Tauranga. Although Tangaroa was the source, Rua Te Pupuki was the hero that gave humans the amazing koha of Whakairo Rako, wood carving. So that is the story behind how wood carving came to be in Aotearoa, and like many stories and myths, it weaves in many different explanations of the world. The most obvious one is of course when Rua is standing outside the burning house and attempting to kill those trying to escape, telling what happened to various fish as an explanation for why they look the way they do. Another is the reason why carvings are silent, despite the fact that, to Māori, it would be obvious that they should speak. I say obvious because Māori believed, and still do, that wood has its own modi, meaning life force or life energy, which is further added to when the image of an ancestor is added, essentially becoming that person. So this story explains why something that, according to Māori belief, should be able to speak, but can't. It's because Rua was, well, he was legging it. Probably because he just burnt a whare for Kaido and attempted to kill the whānau of one of the most powerful gods in the Māori pantheon. But part of it is also that the best carvings can tell a compelling story without any spoken words. Added to this, we learn from the story that carving is divine, tapu, and was established offshore in Hawaii and brought to Aotearoa which is supported by the archaeological record. The other aspect of this story is something we talked a bit about in episode 12 about pre-European Māori women, the teaching of traditions and customs through story. You can see this in how Manu was supposed to sacrifice his first catch and was punished for it, or Rua for his incorrect use of Tangaroa's name. I assume this was, at least in part, meant to be used to put the literal fear of God in children, teens, and maybe some unruly adults to make sure they observed the old ways and didn't incur the wrath of the gods on themselves or the wider hapu. I know this is a bit of a tangent from carving, but what I'm trying to get across, and hopefully you have picked up on it from some of the other myths and stories we have done, is how multifaceted these tales were. They played many different vital roles, from teaching and preserving traditions to explaining the world around them, and I think possibly a healthy dose of entertainment too. I really want to drive home that these aren't just fun stories or interesting bits of culture, although they certainly are those too. But they are more than that. They are history. They are whakapapa. They are the world brought to life through a different lens. They are the preservation of a culture that wasn't far off extinction until fairly recently. Anyway, the next kinda big step in the development of carving was the whareiwānanga called Te Rāwhiraro set up by Hinanaroa in probably the late 1500s near Gisborne. Hinanaroa is credited as really developing carving as an art form, and his whareiwānanga stood for about 300 years before it was collapsed, destroyed, or closed. My sources seem to disagree slightly on what happened. He was even said to have acquired the tekoteko that was Maruruhi and the po that Rua Te Pupuki brought back from the realm of Tangaroa and put them in his house. 
There were lots of other carvers that became famous and changed the style of each region in subtle but important ways, but it would take a very long time to run through them all, so let's just do a more broad view of how Māori carving changed in style. Hinari Mokomid splits Māori art development into four periods. The first is the Nā Kākano, seeds period of 900 to 1200. This was basically the East Polynesian style of the people that came to Aotearoa in the 1250s or so. The second is Tetepuna, growth, from 1200 to 1500, where the regional variants began to develop. Not too much is known of this style, as some of it has been inferred from other pieces that are from a later period and are already transitioning away from this style. In saying that, the styles tend to be more angular, rectangular, geometric and rather restricted, eventually moving to a more cursive style as seen today. The third period is the Puawaitanga, blossoming from 1500 to 1800 and is largely based off the reports of European traders and explorers and where we get a lot of our information about Māori carving. The fourth period is less relevant as it encompasses the modern carving, which is a bit out of the scope of these episodes. Across these periods, two major regional styles developed, as Māori moved away from what was called a rectilinear East Polynesian style of carving to a curvilinear and more distinctly Māori style. Within these two main styles, there were of course all sorts of variations between areas, tribes and even carvers themselves, but in general, most wood carving fits into these two main categories. The serpentine style is associated with the north and west of the North Island. This style features cone-like heads on its humanoid figures and long, sinuous, often S-shaped bodies. These bodies were often decorated, usually with fish scales, the unaunahi pattern which we will talk about next time. The other major style is the Eastern Square style from Central and Southern North Island as well as the top of the South Island. This style uses broad, squat type bodies where the head is usually two thirds of the entire piece. I'll put up some examples on the website so you can see the difference in the two styles. Unfortunately, after the arrival of Europeans, the sinuous style didn't really survive well especially compared to the Eastern Squat style, which flourished and has become the basis of many modern iwi styles. Although in saying that, we are seeing a modern resurgence of the sinuous style. It is debated whether one style developed out of the other, or whether the two styles are even distinct at all, but given the evidence, the consensus generally seems to be that they are two distinct styles. What does confuse this a lot though, is that carvers had a large amount of freedom in what and how to carve. So there are stylistic differences in carvings between carvers in the same region, as well as the fact that carvers tended to move around a lot depending on where the work was. So something to keep in mind when we talk later on about individual examples, is that we can't put too much weight into any singular piece, given that there was so much variation, so we really need multiple pieces to make any hard and fast theories. We haven't really got too much time left, this is looking like it's actually going to be the longest episode thus far, so let's finish on something really cool. As we know, the marae was a central focus of Māori life, and as such, 
objects associated with the marae and its functions became much more important as well. Talking staffs became symbols of authority and were commonly held when someone was speaking on a marae. During Captain Cook's time in Aotearoa, they were usually long wooden weapons, like taiaha, which would be both practical, in case someone attacked you, and symbolic, given that gesturing a weapon can really add some emphasis to a point. Some weapons, like patu and meri, were used in similar ways occasionally, but it seems long weapons like taiaha and tefatifa, a kind of wooden axe, were favoured. At some point, we aren't really sure when, weapons were phased out of this process, although not entirely. Instead, tokotoko, carved staffs, specifically designed for diplomacy, came into use. These staffs could vary from just a polished stick to a fully and intricately carved design. We see, even in modern tokotoko, that no two are the same. Like many things, these staffs reflect their owner, and as such, it would be considered not only rude, but quite unfair to the recipient to copy someone else's tokotoko. In saying that though, there were some general stylistic choices. For example, there were rako whakapapa, that had carved figures at the top and were decorated and notched down the length, but there aren't many surviving examples. These figures at the top were typically an ancestor of the owner, and the designs down the staff would reflect a proverb or some other korero. There was also the totem pole, where figures were stacked one on top of the other down the staff, or figure carvings with plain stem in between, or you see staffs that are only decorated with patterns without any figures, or even just one figure at the top and leaving the rest plain. Again, the main emphasis is that tokotoko should be deeply personalised to the owner. Like most of Māori culture though, these staffs didn't come out unscathed from the arrival of the British Empire. Some staffs did, and do, have hooked handles like an umbrella, most likely influenced by European styles. As usual, if you want to see more, head to the website under this episode. Nowadays, tokotoko are passed down, collected, and even presented to foreign dignitaries, but on the marae, they can be used to spot orators, elders, or people who speak on behalf of their associated group. What I mean is, if you see someone in a fairly formal setting carrying one of these things, they have great mana, should be treated with much respect, and you should probably listen to whatever they have to say, because I'm willing to bet they aren't carrying that thing because it looks cool. Although, they do look really cool. Next time, we talk about specific patterns and motifs in Māori carving, with a particular focus on human figures and how they were presented. To add to this, we will discuss how a carver operated as a profession, as well as some specific carving pieces from the archaeological record. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can reach me through email at historyaltaroa at gmail.com, or Twitter at History Aotearoa, or Facebook at History Aotearoa New Zealand Podcast. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. This podcast is a one-man band, so if you enjoy listening to me talk history, you can support us through Patreon or rate us on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. It means a lot and helps us grow, spreading the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always... Haritu atu 
hockey to my see you next time